Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. In the summer of 1927, Wilbur repaired two sheds in the farmyard and began moving his books and effects out to them. Soon afterward, Earl Sawyer told the loungers at Osborne's that more carpentry was going on at the Watney farmhouse. Wilbur was closing all the doors and windows on the ground floor and seemed to be taking out partitions as he and his grandfather had done upstairs four years before. He was living in one of the sheds and Sawyer thought he seemed unusually worried and tremulous. People generally suspected him of knowing something about his mother's disappearance, and very few ever approached his neighborhood now. His height had increased to more than seven feet, and showed no signs of ceasing its development. The following winter brought an event no less strange than Wilbur's first trip outside the Dunwich region. Correspondence with the Widner Library at Harvard the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the British Museum, the University of Buenos Aires, and the Library of Miskatonic University of Arkham had failed to get him the loan of a book he desperately wanted. So at length, he set out in person, shabby, dirty, bearded, and uncouth of dialect, to consult the copy at Miskatonic which was the nearest to him geographically. Almost eight feet tall, and carrying a cheap new valise from Osborne's general store, this dark and goatish gargoyle appeared one day in Arkham in quest of the dreaded volume kept under lock and key at the college library, a hideous necronomicon of the mad Abdul al-Hazred in Alas Ormeus's Latin version as printed in Spain in the 17th century. He had never seen a city before, but he had no thought save to find his way to the university grounds, where indeed he passed heedlessly by the great white-fanged watchdog and barked with unnatural fury and enmity and tugged frantically at its stout chain. Wilbur had with him the priceless but imperfect copy of Dr. D's English version, which his grandfather had bequeathed him. And upon receiving access to the Latin copy, he at once began to collate the two texts with the aim of discovering a certain passage which would have come on the 751st page of his own defective volume. This much he could not civilly refrain from telling the librarian the same Erudite Henry Armitage, A.M. Miskatonic, Ph.D. Princeton, literary doctor Johns Hopkins, who had once called at the farm, and who now politely plied him with questions. He was looking, he had to admit, for a kind of formula or incantation containing the frightful name Dog So Thought, and it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguities which made the matter of determination 
far from easy. As he copied the formula, he finally chose. Dr. Armitage looked involuntarily over his shoulder at the open pages. The left-hand voyage in the Latin version contained such monstrous threats to the peace and sanity of the world. Nor is it to be thought, ran the text as Armitage mentally translated it, that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be, not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us unseen. Yog so thought knows the gate. Yog so thought is the gate. Yog so thought is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yog so thought. He knows where the old ones broke through of old and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod earth's fields, and where they still tread them, and why no one can behold them as they tread. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are there many of sorts, differing in likeness from man's truest eidolon, to that shape without sight or substance, which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through their seasons. The wind gibbers at their voices. The earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city. Yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadoth in the cold waste hath known them. And what man knows Kadoth? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean hold stones whereon their seal is engraven. But who hath seen the deep-frozen city, or the sealed tower, long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles? Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly? As of foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not. In their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yog so thought is the key to the gate, whereby the spears met. Man rules now, where they ruled once. But they shall soon rule, where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter, summer. They wait patient and potent, for here, Shall they reign again? Associating what he was reading with what he had heard of Dunwich and its brooding presences, 
Dr. Armitage thought of Wilbur Whatley in his dim, hideous aura that stretched from a dubious birth to a cloud of probable matricide, and he felt a wave of fright as tangible as a draft of the tomb's cold clamminess. Bent, goatish giant before him seemed like the spawn of another planet or dimension, like something only partly of mankind, and linked to black gulfs of essence and entity that stretched like titan phantasms beyond all spheres of force and matter, space, and time. Presently, Wilbur raised his head and began speaking in that strange, resonant fashion which hinted at sound-producing organs unlike the run of mankind. Mr. Armitage, he said, I calculate I've got to take that book home. There's things in it I've got to try to understand. I can't get here, and it'd be a mortal sin to let a red tape rule hold me up. Let me take it along, sir, and I'll swear there won't no one know the difference. I don't need to tell ye. I'll take good care of it. But he stopped speaking when he saw the firm denial on the librarian's face and his own goatish features grew crafty. Armitage, half ready to tell him he might make a copy of parts he needed, thought suddenly of the possible consequences and checked himself. There was too much responsibility in giving such a being the key to such blasphemous outer spheres. Wetley saw how things stood and tried to answer lightly, well, all right, if you feel that way about it. Maybe Harvard won't be so fussy as you be. And without saying more, he rose and strode out of the building, stooping through each doorway. Armitage heard the savage yelping of the great watchdog and studied what least gorilla-like lope as he crossed the bit of campus visible from the window. He thought of the wild tales he had heard, and recalled the old Sunday stories in the advertiser, these things, and the lore he had picked up from Dunwich rustics and villagers during his one visit there. Unseen things not of earth, or at least not of tri-dimensional earth, rushed, fetid and horrible, through New England's glens, and brooded obscenely in the mountain tops. Of this he had long felt certain. Now he seemed to sense the close presence of some terrible part of the intruding horror, and to glimpse a hellish advance in the black dominion of the ancient and once passive nightmare. He locked away the Necronomicon with a shudder of disgust but the room still reeked with an unholy and unidentifiable stench. As of foulness, shall ye know them, he quoted. Yes, the odor was the same as that which had sickened him at the Wetley farmhouse less than three years before. He thought of Wilbur, go 
loudish and ominous once again, and laughed mockingly at the village rumors of his parentage. Inbreeding, Armitage muttered half aloud to himself. What simpletons they are. Just show them Arthur Machen's Greek god Pan, then they'll think it a common Dunwich scandal. But what thing, what cursed, shapeless influence, on or off, this three-dimensional earth. Was Wilbur Whatley's father, born on Candlemas, nine months after May Eve of 1912, when the talk of the strange earth noises reached clear to Arkham? What walked on the mountains that May night? What rudeness horror fastened itself on the world and half-human flesh? and blood. During the ensuing weeks, Dr. Armitage set about to collect all possible data on Wilbur Whatley and the formless presences around Dunwich. He got in communication with Dr. Hewton of Eilisbury, who had attended old Whatley in his late illness, and found much to ponder over in the grandfather's last words, as quoted by the physician. A visit to Dunwich Village failed to bring out much that was new, but a close survey of the Necronomicon and those parts which Wilbur had sought so avidly seemed to supply new and terrible clues to the nature, methods, and desires of the strange evil so vaguely threatening this planet. Talks with several students of archaic lore in Boston, and letters to many others elsewhere, gave him a growing amazement, which passed slowly through varied degrees of alarm, to a state of very acute spiritual fear. As the summer drew on, he felt dimly that something ought to be done about the lurking terrors of the upper Miskatonic Valley and about the monstrous being known to the human world as Wilbur Whatley. The Dunwich Horror itself came between Lamas and the Equinox in 1928. Dr. Armitage was among those who witnessed its monstrous prologue. He had heard, meanwhile, of Whatley's grotesque trip to Cambridge and of his frantic efforts to borrow or copy from the Necronomicon at the Widener Library. Those efforts had been in vain, since Armitage had issued warnings of the keenest intensity to all librarians having charge of that dreaded volume. Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home again as if he feared the results of being away too long. Early in August, the half-expected outcome developed, and in the early hours of the morning, Dr. Armitage was awakened suddenly by the wild, fierce cries of the savage watchdog on the college campus. Deep and terrible, the snarling, half-mad growls and barks continued always in mounting volume, 
but with hideously significant pauses. Then there rang out a scream from a wholly different throat. Such a scream has roused half the sleepers of Arkham and haunted their dreams ever afterward. Such a scream as could come from no being born of Earth or wholly of Earth. Armitage, hastening into some clothing, rushing across the street and lawn to the college buildings, saw that others were ahead of him and heard the echoes of a burglar alarm still shrilling from the library. An open window showed black and gaping in the moonlight. What had come had indeed completed its entrance, for the barking and the screaming, now fast fading into a mixed low growling and moaning, proceeded unmistakably from within. Some instinct warned Armitage, that what was taking place was not a thing for unfortified eyes to see. So he brushed back the crowd with authority as he unlocked the vestibule door. Among the others he saw Professor Warren Rice and Dr. Francis Morgan, men to whom he had told some of his conjectures and misgivings, and these two he motioned to accompany him inside. The inward sounds except for a watchful, droning whine from the dog, had by this time quite subsided. But Armitage now perceived with a sudden start that a loud chorus of whippoorwills among the shrubbery had commenced a rhythmical piping, as if in unison with the last breaths of a dying man. The building was full of a frightful stench, which Dr. Armitage knew too well. And the three men rushed across the hall to the small, genealogical reading room whence the low whining came. For a second, nobody dared to turn on the light, but then Armitage summoned up his courage and snapped the switch. One of the three, it is not certain which, shrieked aloud, and what sprawled before them among disordered tables and overturned chairs. Professor Rice declared that he wholly lost consciousness for an instant, though he did not stumble or fall. The thing that lay half-bent on its side, in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow ichor and hairy stickiness, was almost nine feet tall and the dog had torn off all of the clothing and some of its skin. It was not quite dead, but twitched silently and spasmodically while its chest heaved in monstrous unison with the mad piping of the expectant whippoorwills outside. Bits of shoe leather and fragments of apparel were scattered about the room, and just inside the window an empty canvas sack lay, where it had evidently been thrown. Near the central desk, a revolver had fallen, a dented but undischarged cartridge later explaining why it had not been fired. The thing itself, however, crowded out all other images at the time. It would be trite 
but not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it. But one may properly say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour are too closely bound up with the common life forms of this planet and of the three known dimensions. It was partly human, beyond a doubt, with very manlike hands and head, and the goatish, chinless face had the stamp of the what leaves upon it, but the torso and lower parts of the body were teratologically fabulous, so that only generous clothing could have ever enabled it to walk on earth unchallenged or uneradicated. Above the waist, it was semi-anthropomorphic, though its chest, where the dog's rending paws still rested watchfully, had the leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The back was piebald with yellow and black, and dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, it was the worst. For here, all human resemblance leapt off, and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen, a score of long, greenish-gray tentacles with red-sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd, and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. On each of the hips, deep set in a kind of pinkish, ciliated orbit, was what seemed to be a rudimentary eye, whilst in lieu of a tail, there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with purple annular markings and with many evidences of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind legs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians, and terminated in ridgy veined pads that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, its tails and tentacles rhythmically changed color, as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles, this was observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge, whilst in the tail it was manifest as a yellow appearance, which alternated with a sickly greenish white in the spaces between the purple rings. Of genuine blood there was none, only the faded greenish-yellow ichor, which trickled along the painted floor beyond the radius of the stickiness and it left a curious discoloration behind it. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.